0: Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Good, morning. good morning. I do always look forward to this uh, Sunday after Labor Day. Uh, it, it, I know that Labor Day is kind of our last hurrah of summer, and people are uh, going every which way during summer. Uh, and certainly that was the case um, not only with many of you here in the church, but also with uh, me and my family. So, Labor Day, or the Sunday after Labor Day, in many, many ways, is a reconvening of the church as we begin to kind of gather back in increasingly week by week through September uh, as we come off of summer together. I'm looking forward to the morning, and I ask that you turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. How are you this morning? Are you well? Are you here? Okay. Next week, we're going to rejoin our series in the book of Acts. But this morning, I want to reflect on an aspect of our worship that has been part of the Christian tradition from the very inception of the church, the Lord's Supper. Uh, At East Parkway, we practice this on a monthly basis, uh, typically the first Sunday of the month. But because we were elsewhere last week, uh, we're going to share in this symbolic meal today instead. If you've grown up in the church or have been attending our church for any length of time, certainly you are familiar with the Lord's Supper, communion as it's often called. And yet somehow, like like other familiar things in life, we do almost without thinking about it. Uh, It can seem at times that the Lord's Supper can get lost in the shuffle in terms of its significance and application. And Maybe that's why God has impressed this upon me today. Two weeks ago, Sal and I moved uh, our oldest daughter, Abby, uh, out of the house and into her college dorm. Thank you, all of you who have uh, shared with us how you are praying for us and uh, walking this road with us and checking in on us to see how we're doing. Uh, She, Abby, of course, is a pre-nursing student at Biola University and has officially begun Her first week of classes uh, carrying a full 18 units, and it's been quite an adjustment already uh, for her and for us. Um, We've spent a few days, a couple of weeks ago, we were able to spend a few days with her on campus, helping her settle in, uh, meeting her roommate and the other girls uh, in her dorm, running errands for last minute, Necessities and comfort items while preparing ourselves emotionally for that moment when we would say goodbye. And on the night when we said goodbye, that night was highlighted by a school sponsored dinner and communion service. Communion service for all incoming students and families. And during that service, the university president reminded us that we were there for so much more Uh, more than dinner, more than communion, more than saying goodbye to our beloved sons and daughters. We were there, he said, we were there to worship, to recognize God's goodness in our lives and to praise and thank Him for it. Church, that's what I want for us this morning. As a pastor called by God, humbly as your pastor, I want for us to return to the simple sweetness of worship. worship is many things to many people, but at its core, it's simply offering ourselves to God in the recognition of who He is and what He's done and is doing in our lives. That's why Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 call us, each one of us, to reflect upon the mercies of God and then, having paused to remember His abundant goodness in our lives, to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to Him. Why? Because this is the essence of worship. The heart of worship is simply saying to God, Here I am. Here I am. In light of all that you have done, and all, in light of all that you are, here I am. It's acknowledging Him in a way that invites Him into your life so that you can be and become whoever He intends, whatever He intends for you. And during that Biola communion service on that Friday night, as we gathered on Metzger Lawn in the center of campus with students and families and faculty members, We took time, each of us, we took time in that service to avail ourselves to God in this way. To say to God, here I am. And I encourage that for you today, on this Sunday morning, in this room, as we prepare for this communion service, which we will share in just a bit. Because the Lord's Supper is an expression of worship and faith that testifies to your communion with Christ and with others in the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper is an expression of worship and faith that testifies to your communion with Christ and others in the body of Christ. Jesus Himself instituted this practice, of course, and and the churches represented in the New Testament were instructed to keep it, including the church in the city of Corinth, to which the Apostle Paul wrote this letter of 1 Corinthians. And here in chapter 11, he reminds us of the meaning behind this meal as well as the way in which we should approach the table. And it's these two things, the meaning behind this meal and the way We are to approach the table, these two things. This is what I want to consider with you this morning. So let's begin by reading the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to read from verses 17 through 34. I'm actually going to begin at verse 2, and then I'll jump down to verse 17, just because it will... um, It will help keep the flow of what Paul is saying. It will make more sense to us in that way. So he begins in verse 2, speaking. the Apostle Paul speaking to the congregation there at Corinth. He says, now I commend you. I commend you. I commend you, church, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. It will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we want to thank you again for this time we have in your word. We pray that as we receive this instruction in preparation for... The Lord's Supper this morning, we pray that you would uh, renew our hearts and open us to what you'd want to say to us today. We pray that you will refresh us with, with just the, uh, the sweetness of, of your word today, that it would be like honey on our lips We ask that you would uh, help us to be mindful of your work in our lives and your work in our church so that we would be open and receptive to whatever you have for us, even as we come to you now in a spirit of worship. So do this, we pray. Minister to each one of us individually, each one of us. You know us so well, inside and out. You know all the circumstances of our lives. You know the things that bring us joy and despair. And so please, God, minister to each one of us individually today. And yet, would you also please minister to us collectively, for we are the body of Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. In this section of his letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul is instructing the congregation about specific aspects of corporate worship. He comes to the importance of the Lord's Supper and notice he is not happy with what he's heard. Although the Corinthians were appearing to take communion, they did so wrongly with wrong motives. So Paul stresses the meaning behind the meal and the way in which those who receive it are to approach the table. The meaning behind the meal, which is emphasized in the familiar words uh, found in verses 23 through 26, and it's there where we learn the Lord's Supper is an act of thankful remembrance and hopeful anticipation. Thankful remembrance and hopeful anticipation. First, it is an act of remembrance by which we look back with gratitude on the life and death of of Jesus Christ. Beginning with verse 23, Paul draws our attention to the night uh, on which Jesus was betrayed when he gathered his closest friends and followers. He had spent about three years with them to that point. Uh, He had called them, of course, he had called them to himself, he taught them, He modeled for them a life in perfect harmony with God. They heard His words. They saw how He interacted with people of all types, including those who hated Him and and even those whom society had neglected. They listened to and observed how Jesus carried Himself and they followed Him. They did life together. And now Jesus, knowing that His life Uh, his earthly life in this world was drawing to close, he took bread and he broke it and he held it before them saying, this is my body, which is for you. Christ's body was broken for us even though it's our sins that break us off from God. Sin breaks relationship. So to restore the relationship, Jesus substituted Himself in our place by taking all our sinfulness and burying it in His body. He who knew no sin, we're told, was made sin so that we might be made right with God. Therefore, when we, when we eat the bread, we are to recognize that it points to Jesus whose body was broken for us. In the same way, Jesus took the cup and He referred to this cup as the new covenant in His blood. It's a new covenant because before the cross and under the, the sacrificial system at that time, people offered their own sacrifices for sin. Either their, their own sins or the sins of others but any sense of atonement was always temporary and insufficient because Scripture teaches it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Whereas, we're told in 1 John chapter 1, the blood of Jesus cleanses us entirely or thoroughly. The Bible declares that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God but we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. In other words, when it comes to a restored relationship with God, we have nothing to offer Him except our willingness to receive His gift of love in and through Jesus Christ. Nothing but gratitude for what God has done. When we eat the bread, we are to recognize that it points to Jesus, whose body was broken for us, and when we drink the cup, we likewise acknowledge the new covenant that God has made with us, which, which, which He has sealed by nothing less than the precious uh, and priceless blood of His beloved Son. The bread and the cup are symbols of this covenant and reminders that it's still in effect. Do this, He said, do this in remembrance of Me. But there's more. Remembrance in this sense isn't simply a fond look back at a long-since-forgotten event, as uh, Steve Harper observed, when, when Jesus spoke of remembrance, He's actually using it in the Hebraic sense of recalling an event so thoroughly that it comes alive in the present. Recalling a past event so thoroughly that it's made alive all over again. So then the Lord's Supper is meant to elicit a fresh response of gratitude and praise to God who in Christ has done for us what only He can do, it is a way of reliving the experience and thus receiving fresh supplies of divine grace. Is there anyone in need of grace today? Not only is it an act of grateful remembrance, it's also one of hopeful Anticipation, because Paul says in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Again, and it's this until He comes part that's a way of looking forward to the return of Christ when He will fully restore the world to the way it is supposed to be at which time all who have trusted in Christ will be with Him forever. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He lived and gave His life on the cross. He rose from the dead and therefore broke the power of sin and death forevermore. And after appearing for, to many people over a 40-day period, He then ascended to heaven and He reigns today from the right hand of the Father. But He is coming back. And when He does, sin and sin's effects will be completely reversed. The world will be restored as the new heaven and new earth to overtake the old. We will be with God saved, we're told, to the uttermost. At that time... We will feast like no other. We will share in a feast like no other, shared by all of God's people from every time and place. In fact, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, He promised that He wouldn't drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when He drinks it new with us in the kingdom of God. Thus, our participation in the Lord's Supper now is a proclamation that we will one day gather around a banquet table in heaven to eat and drink with Christ in final triumph. So we are looking back and we are looking forward at one and the same time, back to remember all that Christ has done, forward with hopeful anticipation for all that Christ will do. We look back upon Christ's redemptive work, and forward to the time when that work, that work of salvation, will be fully revealed. We look back to the past and forward to the future in a way that informs our present situation. What has been and what will be conjoined to affect what is. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace for you and your circumstance today. And I don't want you to miss it. And so having considered the meaning of the meal, how should we approach the table? And according to this passage, we should do so introspectively. Which means assessing your relationship with Christ and your relationships with others in the body of Christ. Verse 27 cautions against receiving communion in an unworthy manner because doing so makes a person guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. The point is that to receive the bread and the cup selfishly or thoughtlessly is disrespectful to the Lord whose body and blood are of inestimable value. to to approach the table with so little regard for Jesus and the work of Christ misses the meaning of the meal entirely. No wonder Paul took issue with the Corinthians. They gave little thought to what they were doing and why, and therefore they were guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. But the unworthiness alluded to here isn't about being good enough because none of, us, uh, none of us are in fact worthy of God's unmerited favor in this way. Who among us is worthy of, of God's undeserving grace in Christ? Who, of us, who among us is worthy of Christ's sacrificial substitutionary death? No one, right? No one. It is a gift Freely given to those who recognize they cannot earn their own way, but must instead rely on Jesus, who himself is the way. So it's not about feeling worthy or trying to attain a certain level of worthiness before receiving communion. However, it is about approaching the table humbly in a spirit of self examination, knowing that we are sinners saved by grace, and in fact, it is grace we need. It is grace we need not just when we came to Christ. It is grace we need today. We need grace today to walk and remain in Christ. So let a person examine himself, verse 28. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now what's involved in this self-examination? how are we to examine ourselves? In what ways are we to examine ourselves? Certainly it begins with an honest assessment of your relationship with Jesus, right? And so can I ask you this morning, as you reflect on your relationship with Christ, can you say with integrity in your heart of hearts that He is the Lord of your life? Is His life... Being formed in you? In other words, are your thoughts being transformed by His? Are your ways reflecting His? And if not, why not? Is there something keeping you from glad and full surrender to Jesus this morning? And if so, I would encourage you to identify that something and either repent of it or bring it to the Lord and deal with it. Does Jesus mean more to you than just a mere means of having your sins forgiven? Is there unconfessed sin in your life? Is there repentance needed on your part? Are you genuinely grateful for who He is and all that He's done in a way that not only receives Him as Savior, but desires to follow Him as Lord? Since the bread and the cup represent the body and blood of Christ, doesn't it make sense that we would come to the table only after assessing our relationship with Christ? We've got to do some real heart-level work here. Before the Lord, as the Spirit of God shines the, the light of truth into the deepest recesses of our soul. And yet, there's another aspect of this self examination that involves assessing your relationships in the church also which is an important component of your relationship with Christ. You realize that, right? That your relationships in the church is a reflection of your relationship with Christ. And as a matter of fact, when when speaking here with the Corinthians, it's this aspect of, of honest assessment that Paul hits the hardest. The whole section begins with him unwilling to commend them because they were allowing factions and divisions in the church to disrupt and destroy their unity in Christ. In this way, their corporate gatherings were not for the better but for the worse, as mentioned in verse 17. In fact, there appears to have been a degree of entitlement and elitism in that church when it came to sharing the bread and the cup. It seems a line of demarcation had been drawn between those with more means and influence and those with less. For some were eating in abundance and drinking to the point of drunkenness, while others were left with nothing. Can you imagine the scene? Now, it may be hard for us to believe that this was actually taking place, but I just want us to realize that churches today are faced with equally divisive behavior, including divisions over the Lord's Supper. Churches have split over such things, things like whether to serve wine or juice and which kind of wine or juice, Uh, things like which kind of bread to serve. Do we serve a whole full, fresh-baked loaf? Do we serve matzah flatbread that's been broken into pieces? Do we serve those, those, uh, those little, I call them little bread pellets uh, that kind of resemble those, um, those, uh, like those powdery mints that you get at certain holidays? You know what I'm saying? I think they're called butter mints. I'm not kidding you about this. I once heard of a church <laughs> that served Hawaiian bread. Now Hawaiian bread's delicious. <laughs> and I once heard of a church that served Hawaiian bread and then went to a different kind of bread. And I kid you not, the church split because others in the church threw a fit that we were no longer serving Hawaiian. That sheds a light on the human heart. Uh, I know it's funny, but it's also incredibly sad. Because my heart and yours, our hearts are just as prone to that kind of behavior. These type of examples, they mirror the Corinthians in that people were approaching the table selfishly as if they had cornered the market on truth and had exclusive right to the Lord's Supper. Paul is incredulous. He is shocked. He comes down hard on them. Asking rhetorically in verse 22, how could they possibly despise God's church in that way and humiliate their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? He says, shall I commend you in this? No, of course not. I will not. And then later in verse 29, after reminding them of what the meal means and therefore stressing the need for self-examination, he again hammers this home when he says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Without discerning the body, he says. What does this mean? Some believe he's referring to the actual body of Jesus, which was so selflessly given. How how could they be so selfish... And act so selfishly in view of Christ's utter selflessness on their behalf. Others believe it refers to the church, to the metaphorical body of Christ and the individual members who comprise it, that partaking of the Lord's Supper selfishly without concern for unity in the church is not only detrimental but dangerous. So dangerous, notice that Paul says uh, that's why some of the Corinthians were physically ill and had even died. Look at verse 30. People had gotten sick, and some had even died precisely. Because they didn't rightly discern the body and thus ate and drank judgment upon themselves. Because they failed to honestly search their own hearts and their behavior toward others, they actually invited sickness and death into their church. So when you come together for the Lord's Supper, he concludes in verses 33 and 34, when you come together for the Lord's Supper, be considerate of each other so that you don't incur judgment. Paul's not playing around here. And this should get our attention, don't you think? God has brought us together in Christ and because He desires that we eagerly preserve, eagerly protect, eagerly promote this unity we share in the Spirit, we should, when examining ourselves, make sure that our relationships in the church are in good standing. We should guard against factions and divisions because when we come together to the Lord's Supper, it's not just about you and the Lord. It's about you and and the Lord, and everyone else who gathers around that table. We are one in Christ. And for an illustration of this kind of oneness, uh, as I was thinking about this this week, God brought my thoughts to, to, uh, to, the, 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 to the time when Jesus instituted this practice. And so I just want you to think about the people who gathered around the table for that first Lord's Supper. These, these, these people were not cut from the same cloth. They were different. They were, they were people like us who didn't always agree on every point. For example, just, just a, a small example, but a very important one, Matthew was a tax collector meaning that Matthew had worked for Rome. Matthew was employed by Rome. Matthew had Rome's best interests in mind when he did his job. Simon the Zealot, however, Simon the Zealot was part of a a Jewish sect, uh, the Zealots, that conspired to overthrow Rome the zealots were also always looking for any and every opportunity to attack Rome and conspire against Rome. And so here you have these two men, Matthew and Simon the zealot. Uh, Jesus brings them both together and says, you're now following me and we're going to learn to be one. And you can just imagine what that must have been for those three years. Simon probably thought Matthew, probably accused Matthew of selling out. What a sellout. He's not a real Jew. Well, Matthew probably thought Simon was just Temperamental hothead, always running his mouth. Always looking to pick a fight. And yet Jesus, what does he do? He brings them together. And he washes all of their feet. And then he tells all of them to follow his example by doing for others what he has done for them. Matthew, I want you to have this heart. I want you to have this attitude towards Simon where you would wash his feet. And Simon, I want you to have this attitude and this love for Matthew that you would wash his feet. And then I want you guys to go out into the world and have this attitude that you would stoop down before other people and you would humble yourselves and you would wash their feet. I don't want you to think of yourself more highly than you ought. No, I want you to approach it as if you were the lowest of all. And later that night, just before he went to the cross, He actually prayed for them in this regard and for all the disciples of Christ's sense when He said, Father, Father, may they all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, May they be one so that the world would know that I have sent them. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, David Pryor writes Paul was not naive, he expected any church hear this, he expected any church to be full of different emphases on this or that matter. Such selectivity in Christian convictions amongst those submitted to the lordship of Jesus is inevitable. Another way to say that is we won't always see things the same way. It's inevitable that we will see things differently at different points in time. It's inevitable that we will sometimes come to Scripture and have different understandings of what certain verses or passages are saying. It's inevitable. Such selectivity and Christian conviction amongst those submitted to the Lordship of Jesus is inevitable, but there is absolutely no need let alone any propriety for Christians to break fellowship on the basis of such distinctives. When such schism actually penetrates the public worship of the congregation, the situation is scandalous, he says. And if I may, I think we need to hear this right now. In fact, I cannot help but think the reason God led me to preach on the Lord's Supper today is because the issue of oneness and unity and togetherness is under attack. And the need to put aside our few differences of opinion for the sake of all that we share in Christ is critical to the health and future of our church. So, each one of us, for each of us, this affects our relationship with Jesus. And obviously, it affects how we relate to one another and move forward together. Well, continuing to build a community for the cause of Christ. After all, if the people of the Corinthian congregation, who lived within a few decades of Christ and were mentored by the Apostle Paul himself, if they needed to be reminded of these things, then it's no surprise that we need similar reminders, right? So I began by asking you to avail yourselves to God this morning, right where you are, right in your seats, right in this room, right in these moments, to say to God in a spirit of worship, this is between you and Him, and this is to say to God, here I am. To present yourself to Him as a holy and pleasing sacrifice. Here I am. And I want to invite you or remind you to do that even now as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper. So at this time I'd like to invite Uh, Patrick and Zach, to come forward and, and just lead us in song before we share in this time together. And so as we sing, I encourage you, church, I encourage you to think about the meaning of this symbolic meal, the meaning of this meal, and the way we're to approach the table. And then after we sing, after this song, I'll come back and I'll explain how we're going to partake today. May God bless you.